Please turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel 3. This is the well-known story of history of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we're going to pick up in the middle of the passage after the decree has gone out to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's statue and um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have refused. Beginning of verse 13, it says, Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, The flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Amen. Let's turn now to Acts chapter 5, where we'll read verses 12 to the end of the chapter. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed." But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, 
go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day, in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. In the year 1521, Martin Luther was summoned to appear before the uh, Diet of Worms, called by the Emperor, Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, uh, to answer for his uh, many fierce criticisms of the life and the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church in his day. He had already been excommunicated by the Pope, and so his life was clearly in peril if he did not recant or reject um, the things that he had been saying. And at that uh, crucial moment, Luther 
came back to the court of the emperor with a very famous speech uh, where he concluded like this. He said, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me. Amen. So what Luther and the other reformers were trying to do in the 16th century and and after was, was to recover and renew in the church a truly apostolic Christianity. Getting back to that that pure gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, based on the scriptures alone, and to the glory of God alone. And in doing that, their experiences and their personal sacrifices and the courage that they showed really resembled in many ways the experiences and the sacrifices and the courage of that first foundational apostolic generation of church leadership. And we're going to see an example of that today here in Acts 5, um, as we're going to divide this passage by calling verses uh, 12 to 26 an unquenchable flame. Verses 27 to 32 will be an unflinching loyalty. And verses 33 to 42, an undertaking of God. So an unquenchable flame, an unflinching loyalty and an undertaking of God. All right. So uh, verse 12 here uh, begins by describing the supernatural power of Christ that uh, continued here in chapter 5 to authenticate the apostolic message by uh, many signs and wonders that were being regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Again, should notice here that it is Christ, really, who is healing from heaven, but he's doing it now through the apostles' hands. And so it's unmistakable now to the people of Jerusalem that these men are operating with a kind of power that can only come from God. It can't originate just with mere uh, human beings, and that means that their message must also be from God. Now, the reaction here among the uh, kind of Jerusalem elite is very telling Because they're seeing the same thing that everybody else is seeing, but their reaction is very different. Their response is not to hold the apostles in high esteem, uh, and it's certainly not to believe and be added to the Lord themselves, like verse 14 says of many people. No, verse 17 says they were filled with jealousy. Filled with jealousy. Uh, Jealousy for what, we might ask? Well, jealousy, I think, for their own power. The message of the resurrection of Christ threatens their position of influence over the people. And uh, so they end up making a choice here that is really irrational. It ends up being quite counterproductive, in fact, uh, for their, from their point of view. Um, they immediately arrest the apostles and they put them in the public prison. Okay, But that becomes the occasion for... Uh, God to further their message even more. It is 
the supernatural power of God that was freeing the people of Jerusalem from their diseases, from demons by the hands of these men. And now that same supernatural power of God is brought to bear to free these men themselves and to lead them out of the prison doors in the middle of the night with the guards being completely unawares. Um, And you notice what the angel tells them as he releases them. He says, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Now, of course, we have to remember what the council told Peter and John back in chapter 4 when they said, speak no more to anyone in this name. And so there's a direct contradiction here, a direct contradiction between what the Jerusalem authorities have commanded on the one hand and what God is commanding uh, through his messenger on the other hand. Speak no more versus go and stand in the temple and speak. It couldn't be more stark of a contrast between what it would look like to obey man versus what it would look like to obey God. And I love what happens next. This is, this is a great, great part of the book of Acts. It says, And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Kind of reminds me of Bugs Bunny or the Pink Panther or something. When just when the cartoon nemesis thinks that they finally got him. He thinks yeah, they, they've blown up or gotten smushed or something. Free at last! You're not going to have to worry about... Well, then they pop up again somewhere else. Where did they come from? We thought they, we'd gotten rid of them. I think, um, I think that Luke really wants us to see this uh, in, in all of that kind of that humor, that it's kind of a, a funny moment um, where the, the, the uh, leaders, the whole council, all the senate of the people of Israel, they're all sitting in all of their kind of pomp and circumstance in the council chamber, and they're all ready to, to put these apostles on trial. And so they say, go to the prison and bring them out so that we can judge them and the officers come back and they say well we went to the prison and the guards were there and the doors were locked uh but there was nobody inside they're they're gone we don't know what's happened and then it gets even better when uh, these other messengers come um the 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 captain of the temple the chief priests they're they're perplexed they have no idea what's going on and all of a sudden comes this other person who says uh those people that you put in prison they're back in the temple they're they're teaching again and we should stop there and think you know if, if you were to break out of jail um the first thing you would do is probably not going to be to maybe go to Penn State and start giving a speech out on in the middle of campus, right? You're going to go into hiding. You're going to, uh, you know, change your hair and take on a fake name and try to lie low for a while uh, until the search dies down, but uh, not the apostles. And why is that? Well, the, the reason is that the point of their escape from prison wasn't merely to rescue them from danger. Um, ultimately, that's what the Lord is doing. He is rescuing them from, from danger in a sense. But it's more than that. The point of their rescue from prison in this case was to display the power of God in a way that would further communicate the authenticity of their ministry and their message. They would actually, in fact, bring to a head their conflict with the authorities. They would intensify that conflict. But now, with the tables completely turned, with the opposition kind of thrown off balance, You have to ask, who's really in charge here? As the officers go and they bring them, it says, but not by force. It's like they ask them politely, will you please come back to the... uh, They probably didn't say, would you please, but they don't use force. Why? Because they're afraid of being stoned by the people. And here you get the feeling, it's like one of, like in a, a superhero or a spy story where the guy gets captured, but you have this funny feeling that the the prisoner is the one who really is in control. (laughs) And um, you, you get the sense it's all part of the plan. And that this is not going to go very well for the people who captured him. 
and the tables have been turned. One of the themes, really, in uh, this book of Acts is the irrepressibility of the gospel. That the gospel is an unquenchable flame. Um, That it was an unquenchable flame that was lit at Pentecost and that through the apostles, Christ's kingdom is going to just continue advancing in spite of any kind of opposition that uh, arises against it. Even, and this is important, even through that opposition. That opposition is a means by which God causes his kingdom and his gospel message to advance. It's very important. Um, In God's providence, it often is opposition to the gospel that he uses to advance the gospel. And this is a reason for us as God's people not to be intimidated, not to be kind of thrown back on our heels in surprise when we encounter opposition to the Christian message. We have to understand that this is normal. This is what God's people have always faced from the very beginning. And we also should remember that the church is very often at its very best and at its very most effective when its opponents give it the opportunity to give an answer for the hope that we have in Christ with gentleness and reverence. And and when the Lord takes those hard situations and he uses them to do exactly the opposite of what the church's opponents intend. Because this word, this gospel, this kingdom is an unquenchable flame. And then second, we see here the unflinching loyalty of the apostles. Back in chapter 4, we talked about the contrast between Peter's denial of Christ in Luke 22 and then his bold confession of Christ before the Jerusalem court um, back in chapter 4. And so uh, now it's not just Peter and John, but all the apostles who have been brought for trial. Uh, And that's significant because this is the whole leadership of the Christian church at this time. The whole Christian movement is really hanging in the balance here. Um, And we can also remember here that it wasn't just Peter who uh, denied and forsook Christ, in a sense, uh, before his crucifixion. Um, Matthew says in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus was finally arrested, all of the disciples left him and fled. And so now it's not just Peter, but all of those disciples, all the apostles who have now been transformed dramatically by the resurrection of Christ and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now they are no longer cowering. Now they are no longer bending and breaking at the threat of violence from the authorities. But now they are prepared to say we must obey God rather than men. They're on trial here for teaching in Jesus' name. Uh, But what do they do here in the courtroom? That's exactly what they do. They teach in Jesus' name, once again, given this new platform, as they respond to the authorities and say, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. They're like a broken record. They're just going to keep telling people about the gospel of Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead and the hope that Christ is for Israel as the Savior and the King. And as once again, as they say, you you killed him by hanging him on a tree, you might ask the question, who's really on trial here? Peter is putting his captors on the defensive. They're the ones who crucified Jesus, after all. But God, Peter says, exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior. Why? To give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Peter's making very clear here the message that they are uh, bearing is a message 
for Israel. It is a message for Israel. The God, the God that they're proclaiming is the God of our fathers, not some new God. Christianity is not some new religion. It is the true religion of the Old Testament. It's the same religion now come into fulfillment. Um, Daryl Bach, in his commentary, points out that throughout the book of Acts, you don't see the apostles so much abandoning the Judaism of Israel as as you see them being abandoned and rejected by the mainstream Judaism of their day. See, the apostles saw themselves as proclaiming the true religion of Israel, but now come into its own, now entering the time of fulfillment. And it was, it was actually the mainstream leadership then who rejected that fulfillment and therefore were veering off the path. Who were, they were the ones who were abandoning the covenant as the apostles carried on the true covenant of grace. Um, Sometimes people, even Christians, um, will will talk and think as though uh, Judaism today is the uh, kind of authentic continuation of Old Testament faith, and then Christianity is kind of something different, sort of, people call it a parenthesis in in God's plan. and that's simply not the case when you look at the scriptures. When you look at how the gospel is being proclaimed in Acts and throughout the New Testament, no, the point here is that Christ is the leader and savior who has been now exalted to the right hand of the one true God of the Old Testament, the God of our fathers, to give repentance and forgiveness to Israel to um, in, in the New Testament. To give this repentance, forgiveness uh, to Israel, and ultimately we'll see that it's to Um, anyone, Jew or Gentile, who will put their trust in him. But this is a message for Israel. It is the Old Testament religion coming to its own. And I'd like to go back for a second to what I was saying earlier about Martin Luther here uh, and how there's this analogy between the apostle situation and what was happening in the Reformation as well as at many other periods in the history of the church. Remember how the Roman church um, viewed and really still views Protestants as the schismatics, as the ones who were dividing the church. But that was not so. The reformers... Uh, frequently argued that, no, it's, it's actually the doctrine and the worship and the leadership of the medieval church that have departed, who have, that have veered off drastically from the true faith. It's the papal hierarchy that veered away. That's the real schism. See, the true grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, Scripture alone, glory of God alone, uh, truly Catholic Christianity is what the Reformers were seeking to preserve and renew um, in the Reformation of the Church, bringing it back into form, reforming it according to the Word of God. It's the same, uh, another example, this would be the early history of our own church, of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Uh, J. Gresham Machen was accused of being schismatic, um, but he consistently contended, I'm simply calling the church back to its history, back to its confessional roots, since the people who, who simply don't believe the Bible, who don't believe in the resurrection, who don't believe in the virgin birth, they're the ones who have veered off. And significantly, um, Machen himself didn't leave the mainline church. He was kicked out. He was rejected by the church. Uh, and so that's why our church is, is seeking to continue the legacy of the, of the faithful church rather than starting something brand new. That's not what's going on. And so why do I bring up all that church history? Well, it's to illustrate that this here I stand, I can do no other attitude um, is not unique to Martin Luther. This is something that the church has needed repeatedly. In fact, in every generation of its life, 
as its leaders have repeatedly had to stare down uh, very strong opposition and have needed to stand in the gap against the trends of popular opinion and against the threats of those who have tremendous power to do the church harm from a human point of view. And it is also for us the attitude that you and I need to be cultivating as part of our own church culture today, right here at Resurrection, because we need to understand that when there is a conflict between the law of God and some consensus of contemporary culture out there, we we must obey God rather than men. This is the message for the church today as much as for the apostolic time. When there is a conflict between what the Lord has commanded us to do or to say or to teach or to believe, on the one hand, and on the other hand, there's what the authorities of our day, and that's not just government, by the way. It includes government. but also includes the authorities of business, of education, of uh, culture, and its various power centers, what they are influencing you in many different ways to do or to say or to teach or believe. Or, and this is important, as they're influencing you not to say certain things. That's what's happening here with the apostles, right? They're being commanded not to say something. And how easy would it have been, because they had this option, the apostles could have said, well, okay, well, they're, they're not telling us that we can't believe in Jesus in private. We can still be Christians. We can still follow Jesus ourselves. So let's just do that. That'll be a good compromise. We'll just have our personal faith, but we'll stop talking about Jesus publicly to accommodate this directive from the authorities to keep from giving offense. And no, that's precisely when they stand up and they say, no, we must obey God rather than men. Why? Because we've been given a mission by the Lord Jesus Christ. There are things that we must say because he's commanded us to quite directly. Go and teach these things. Teach them, in fact, Christ said, all that I have commanded you. Week by week, we print in the bulletin uh, stories from the persecuted church things that our brothers and sisters in other lands have endured because they have had this here-I-stand conviction that we must obey God rather than men. Then we should look at ourselves and, and think, how little are we prepared to sacrifice? How little, even just inconvenience, are we really willing to endure? And how easily... Is our silence bought or forced by just the the slightest threat of the mere disapproval of others? And this is something we should be convicted about when the theme of our hearts really ought to be the one that's modeled for us by the apostles and by so many heroes of the faith down through the centuries who have gone before us, which is we must obey God rather than men. We should also remember that we're not to say this with our, our heads hanging down, kind of defeated and resigned to the failure of our mission in the face of these you know, impossible forces of evil, as though the kingdom of God is kind of a lost cause and we're just going to go down in a blaze, uh, blaze of glory. Oh, we must obey God rather than men and, and that'll be the end. Now, see what we learn from the history of the apostles as well as the history of the church 
that the opposition to Christ's church can never ultimately overcome it. And why is that? It's because it is not mere human effort that we're dealing with. The defense, the thriving, the growth of the church is a divine activity. It is the work of God. It is the work of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that means that no matter the apparent odds, it is Christ who will bring the church through because the mission of the church is ultimately, number three, an undertaking of God. And very ironically, that's a message that we learn at the end of this chapter from one of the opponents of the church, from the very distinguished Rabbi Gamaliel, Pharisee, who speaks up here just as the council is on the verge of calling an end to this trial and outright killing these uh, apostles just like they killed their master Jesus before them. But Gamaliel says, wait just a minute. Think about what you're doing here. Listen, if, you, if you're right and these men are, are lying, they're making all this up, if this whole Christian movement is just a human invention, then what do you think is going to happen? It's going to fizzle out. It's going to be forgotten in a minute, just like every other uh, sort of charismatic leader who's come and gone in our public life for the last few decades. Easy come, easy go, these kinds of people. But listen, what if you're wrong? What if you're wrong and their message really is from God? And, of course, they've seen the evidence, what these apostles have been doing. All of the recent evidence seems to point that way. If it is of God, he says, you will not be able to overthrow them. In fact, you might even be found to be opposing God. And Gamaliel speaks here perhaps even more truly than he knows. We shouldn't forget that it is um, Gamaliel's own star student, Saul of Tarsus, who, who did not take this advice of his teacher as he became the leading persecutor of the church, but it was Saul of Tarsus who found out just how true this council was. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads, Jesus said to him on the road to Damascus. See, Saul himself was not able to overthrow them because he was opposing God. And it was indeed Saul whose life was overthrown, turned completely upside down by the resurrection power of Christ as he was transformed into the Apostle Paul. So as we close, I want to focus your attention this morning on the aftermath of this trial then. Uh, Gamaliel's advice does carry the day, and so the apostles are not killed. They are released, not before they are beaten, though, and warned sternly again against carrying out their mission from Christ. But I love verse 41, when it says they left the presence of the council. They leave kind of discouraged and are nursing their wounds because they'd been so dishonored and they felt maybe like Christ had let them down in this moment of need. No, they left rejoicing. They left rejoicing. Be- and why was that? Why were they rejoicing? Were they rejoicing? Oh, because they had escaped with their lives. Whew, that was really close. No, they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. 
the beating that they endured, that day for Jesus was just a fraction, just a fraction of what Jesus had so recently endured for them at the hands of these same people. And suffering this dishonor for Jesus then could only serve to deepen their sense of closeness and loyalty to the one who had suffered the ultimate dishonor for them, but was dishonored no longer. Now that Lord Jesus was exalted at the Father's right hand, as they said, as leader and savior to give them repentance and forgiveness of sins. Verse 31, they rejoiced because they knew that they were sharing Christ's sufferings. They were becoming like him in his death, as Paul would later say. And they rejoiced because they knew that Jesus was now on the throne and that he would and that he will throughout the life of the church continue to defend his church and give his word success in spite of all opposition and in fact even through that opposition all the way to the end until he comes. That is good news for the church. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this good news that the Lord Jesus Christ is on the throne as leader and savior and that you have given to us the gift of repentance and forgiveness of sins. Lord, what a mercy and what a grace this is and what a power of Christ is displayed in this passage. Lord, we pray that you would give us courage as your church to obey you rather than men, no matter how great the pressure may be to the contrary. Lord, forgive us how quickly our courage melts away at the mere threat even of the frowns of those around us, much less a threat of force. Lord, give us strength to obey you rather than men in all that you have called us to do, especially as we bear your message into the world in fulfillment of the mission Christ has given us. We ask all these things in his name. Amen.